Well, it was really good to see that uh, video recapping all that happened at church camp. It was a lot of fun. It's my first church camp experience uh, here at Stony Brook, and, and my family and I really had a blast. I learned a few things as well. Uh, I learned maybe first and foremost that I am a terrible horseshoes player. I am very, very bad, though the, the muddy conditions didn't help. I learned that Team 3 owns at Pig Treasure, just the best, best Pig Treasure team I've ever been a part of. <clears throat> I learned that Mark Carr can speak really loudly when necessary, and sometimes when it isn't. You know, I, I learned that I can't remember theme songs to TV shows worth squat. That's a skill that I don't have. That was a hard game to play. Uh, I learned throughout the weekend, as the speaker was teaching us how to be a good neighbor, and I did not learn, but I was reminded of how much we are a church family that enjoys being together. So I had a wonderful weekend there. And I would encourage you, uh, especially if you weren't able to make it this year, to, uh, to look ahead to next year and to, to make every uh, chance you can, to make every effort to be out there at church camp. I'd love to see uh, even more of us together a year from now. It was also very refreshing for me to have a week off from speaking. I enjoyed Kelby Friesen and his messages on how to neighbor well. And it was good just to sit and to receive. I, I, I liked that quite a bit. It was part of what I took out of that weekend. Uh, but it is also wonderful, as always, after having a break, to be back, uh, to be here in the chapel, to be together with you, and also to have the privilege of looking into God's Word together. Uh, we have only two weeks left in our sermon series on spiritual renewal. Uh, we, we've been going through uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, uh, mostly th since Advent. And Advent is a long time ago. And so I, I just thank you for your patience as we've been tracking slowly, steadily, surely through the Gospel with our eye always on this theme of spiritual renewal. And the last two weeks, we're, we're supposed to be in sync with the Christian calendar. We're just going to be one week off because of church camps. So we're going to talk about the Ascension today and then Pentecost next week. And then that will wrap up our time together here. And uh, so with that in mind, I'd encourage you to take your Bibles, if you have them with you. We're going to be actually in the book of Acts. Uh, so we are uh, just dipping into the very beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1. And I will read for you the first 11 verses. And just as a way of reminder, uh, we've gone through, again, mostly the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke was, uh, was not only wrote the Gospel, but he also wrote the book of Acts. Basically two books as one unified work. And so we'll, we'll find that out even in the intro as he gives us here starting in verse 1. So picking up at the very first verse of Acts. In the first book, meaning the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but ye will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they being the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this time is yours. Uh, the worship we have to give you is yours. Uh, this uh, a time we spent to, to dig deeper into the word that you have given us is also yours. And I pray that you would turn that around and bless this time. I pray that we would encounter you and your words with, with humble hearts. I, I pray that we would be encouraged by what the ascension of Jesus means for our lives. And God, I pray that again, as always, we would go out and live differently in light of the truth we learn together. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so the, the, the book of Acts opens with a bit of a, a preamble and almost uh, a, a summary of what uh, had taken so long for Luke to write about in the Gospel of Luke, and then has, has another account of the ascension of Jesus. And it is particularly the ascension that we want to spend time unpacking here together. Uh, because the ascension is, is part of our theology, our understanding of Jesus, that we often find easy not to uh, prioritize the same way that we do the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and even all the way back to the birth of Jesus. And yet, the ascension is a crucial part of the ministry and the mission and the salvation that is found in Jesus. We must not lose sight of the importance of the ascension and what it means for us to live in light of what the ascension brought. Uh, that is much the focus of the book that I'm going to share a few quotes from. I had a, a, a professor at Providence uh, College when I went there that I appreciated quite a bit by the name of Dr. Tim Perry, and he wrote a book along with his brother Aaron that's called He Ascended Into Heaven, Learned to Live an Ascension-Shaped Life. And much of uh, the reason that they wanted to write this book is they felt that in the evangelical church, we often lose sight of the ascension and we, we skip over it when we talk about all the things that needed to happen in order for our salvation and victory to be achieved. And particularly, particularly, it's that theme of victory that we need to recapture when we think of the ascension. Uh, this is what the Perrys write uh, on page 23 of their book. They say that Jesus' victory, the display of his glory, the fullness of the kingdom, is Jesus being taken up to sit at God's right hand. It is the ascension. Why is it important to our understanding of Jesus? Because at the ascension, he was truly lifted up. He was exalted. He was glorified. He was lifted to victory. And that victory that he achieved was full and it was complete. And so when we don't emphasize or focus on the ascension, we lose sight of the victory when we should be celebrating it. Now, celebrating victory is something I think we all enjoy doing. I think of it especially in terms of sports. When I was in junior high, I got to make good friends with a, with a missionary kid from Peru, and he convinced me I needed to play soccer. And so I agreed, and for one season I played soccer. And our team was not in the top tier. We were, in the, we were on the B division, but we were a juggernaut. We won every single game that year. And we found out at the very end of the season that we had the right to challenge the winners of the A division, and if we could beat them, we could go to the Tournament of Champions. I mean, that's, what a great name. Soccer loves their names, right? The Tournament of Champions. And so we said, we're going to do it. This hasn't happened in, in over two decades. We're going to challenge the, the top dogs. And so we did. And they made it extra hard. We had to beat them twice. And they only had to defeat us one time in order to move on. And, and, and you, before you know it, the time is counting down. We're ahead at the very end of the second game. And I can still remember just waiting, willing that referee to blow the full-time whistle. And when he did, 
we were so excited. We just piled on one another at the middle of the field. We were celebrating our victory. Now, my athletic career has long since <laughs> gone to the rearview mirror, and so now I must just enjoy celebrating the victory of the teams that I cheer for. And, and so it's happened a few times in my life. When I was living in Dallas, the Stars won the Stanley Cup in 1999. That was a lot of fun. And my adopted basketball team, the Dallas Mavericks, won the NBA championship in 2011. And wouldn't you know it, I didn't think this was ever possible, but even my beloved Blue Bombers won the Grey Cup, and they did it two times in a row. And I can still remember most recently that moment when the uh, pass was tipped into the waiting arms of Kyrie Wilson, and then interception in overtime, and they instantly became champions. And I was jumping up and down and yelling and screaming, and I had no problem celebrating that victory. But what is a game? What is a game when we encounter what Jesus did? What the stakes were when he came into this world, and then what the stakes were when he gave up his life, and what the stakes were when he conquered death. And that is a victory that is worth celebrating. And that is the call of the ascension on our life. It is all part of that one plan of salvation. I really appreciate the way that Paul describes it in Philippians 2. And he follows along very poetically and succinctly, but he looks at what the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension means as far as God's plan for his relationship with his people. Picking up in Philippians 2, verse 7, But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension is that crowning moment of victory, a victory that we should be excited to celebrate above every other victory. And the result of Jesus ascending into heaven now is true worship of him. He is the name above all names, and all people will. They will bow the knee and worship him one day. This is something that the disciples recognized at the moment of the ascension. They knew full well that they encountered God and God himself, and they knew the victory that was shown before their eyes, and they knew that the only proper response was worship. We see this, and I'm going to go back for you. You can just stay in Acts. I'm going to go back to the end of Luke. And in Luke's account there, it's a little more succinct at the end of his gospel. But it shows the response of the disciples. In Luke 24, verse 50, Then Jesus led the disciples out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and we're continually in the temple blessing God. So sure, they didn't know all about Jesus while they were with him. They began to know more and more about his true nature and mission. And yes, after the resurrection, Jesus came and, and opened their minds to the truth of Scripture. And it was when they watched him ascend into heaven where there was no more doubt at all that this was God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the name above all names. He is worthy of being celebrated and worshipped. And our response must be the same. We must celebrate the victory of Christ. And we do this 
in two ways. We do this by remembering that his exaltation means victory over everything. Victory over everything. This is victory over death. This is victory over sin. This is victory over pain. This is victory over brokenness. This is victory over fear. Jesus conquered all. And so we have this great invitation and wonderful opportunity to live a victorious life in Christ. And that is one thing that we ought to do. The ascension says Jesus has won. Jesus is victorious. And when you trust in him and when you follow him, he invites you to live in that victory. We have What does that look like? There are so many different ways. I could not only preach a whole other sermon, I could preach another sermon series on what it means to live a victorious life. But one way that God is truly teaching me to live in this victory is to overcome fear. When we are afraid, we are losing sight of the victory that Jesus has already won. And when we celebrate this victory, we can find ourselves free of this fear something that God has been teaching me a lot of, and so I actually want to point uh, that direction in our next sermon series. After Worship in the City, we're going we're gonna to spend a few weeks over the course of summer talking about what it looks like to overcome our fear in the victory of Jesus. We have that to look forward to, but that's one takeaway for us today. We also celebrate the victory of Christ when we worship Him as Lord, the name above all names. And what I love about when we look at the ascension and when we go to passages like Philippians, and it talks about this being for the glory of God the Father. This isn't about us. This isn't really about the victory that we have in Jesus. This is about the victory that Jesus achieved for his glory, for his honor. It is about him and not about us. And that's what worship is. Worship is this acknowledgement that someone other than us is worthy of our adoration and worthy of our praise and is a worthy object of our worship. Because be certain, for every person, the question is not, do you worship, but what do you worship? And the ascension calls us to ensure that we are worshiping Christ and Christ alone. Something that the world around us will feel quite strange. view is quite strange and vice versa, but there are still objects of worship in the world around us even right now. Well, there was a while ago, about uh, just over 10 years ago, I guess the timeline would be, I was a youth pastor. I took our students to a rally with Franklin Graham at the Forks, and it was great. We had a time of of worship through music there, and then Franklin Graham presented the gospel to the students, and and there was a lot of, of people there, and I was excited. I was like, look how full the Forks is to worship and to to learn about Jesus. But then one week later, almost to the day, the NHL makes an announcement. And guess what? The Jets are coming back. Well, wouldn't you know, they hold a rally at the Forks, and there is ten times more people there yelling, screaming, celebrating, worshiping the return of a local sports team. Now, I'm a big Jets fan, and I was excited that day. But those two events didn't sit well side by side in my mind. Which victory is greater? What object? person is more worthy of our praise. The ascension makes that point very clear in the mind of the disciples and in our hearts today. And yet the ascension, while highlighting the victory, also highlights a paradox. We have a paradox in our life, in our relationship with God, and the paradox is that Jesus is physically absent and spiritually present at the same time. And the ascension helps explain this and make sense of it for us. This is another point that the Perrys make in their book. They say that the ascension is a metaphor that describes the way Christians experience the reign of Jesus in their hearts. It helps us make sense of the fact that Jesus is physically absent 
and yet spiritually present to us at the same time. Now, if you're someone who has grown up in church, perhaps you haven't thought how strange those two ideas are, yet we, we just maybe take them for granted because it's been taught to us for so many years. If you're someone who maybe is, is new to church or you're exploring the faith, you'll think, yeah, that is quite a confusing thing. What do you mean that Jesus is both here and not here? Well, the ascension does help explain both of these things because Jesus is not physically among us. And make no mistake, when we encounter Luke's description of the ascension in Acts 11, this is a historical narrative. Jesus was in bodily form, his resurrected bodily form, and his disciples were with him, and they watched his body ascend into heaven. He was at one point with them, and then he ascended, and he was physically no longer with them. So this is not just a metaphor or a word picture or a lesson. This happened, and it explains a great deal about who Jesus is, and how we relate to him. And it happened, and the disciples were clearly confused because, as Luke tells us in Acts, they were gazing into the sky. And, and we can interpret that as them staring intently. Like, they were just looking up, and they're like, what? <laughs> they had seen a lot of unexplainable things in following Jesus. I mean, they'd given up their lives, trusted in him as the Messiah. They had, had seen him do signs and wonders and miracles. They had watched him betrayed and, and, and beaten, tortured, and killed, and then be resurrected himself from the dead. They thought they'd seen it all, and then his resurrected body was doing things that were impossible to do. And then maybe they said, this is, finally we understand, and now all of a sudden he's ascending in, into heaven, and they are looking, and they are confused because they have now seen one more unexplainable thing. But it was an important thing because it taught them that Jesus was no longer physically with them. He was there and then he was gone. In a very real way, Jesus had been on this earth and he had been taken away from this earth. And his followers knew that he had left them for good. But he had left them with quite the task. You see, Jesus' mission on earth was complete. That was one of the statements that was made as he ascended. My work here is done. But to the apostles, their mission was just beginning. And now every follower today of Jesus, from that point on forward, was aware of his physical absence. We have talked multiple times together about how we have not had the privilege that the disciples did to be with Jesus in physical form. We have not been able to see him or touch him or to hear him or to, to feel those scars. That was a luxury that his first followers have that we do not have. He is physically not here. And yet the absence of Christ is not to our detriment. As the Bible explains, it's actually for our benefit. You see, Jesus is our high priest, and he mediates between us and a holy God. An unholy people and a holy God, there must be a mediator, and that mediator is Jesus. And that is what he is doing even now at the right hand of the Father. He is also our advocate interceding on our behalf, and so our prayers are heard by our Heavenly Father because of the work Jesus does seated at his right hand. And he describes himself even, especially in the Gospel of John, that Jesus needs to go in order so that the Holy Spirit could be sent and abide in our hearts. So Jesus is not here physically, but he is left for our benefit because he is still spiritually present. Christ's absence is not abandonment. He is spiritually present through the abiding Holy Spirit which is why we can confidently sing our Sunday school songs about Jesus being in our heart, being with us, because that is absolutely and completely true. 
It is why Jesus can declare to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, right before he does ascend, he says to them at the end of the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we read in John chapter 14, verses 18 to 19, a wonderful promise of how Jesus is not abandoning us. This is what he says to his disciples. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Isn't that wonderful? He knows he's going to leave, but he says, even when I go, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Jesus is physically absent, but spiritually present. None of us are orphans. We can rightfully talk about a relationship with Jesus because Christ abides in us and we abide in him. When we, when we trust him, when we follow him, when we give our lives over to him, the spirit of Christ abides in us, in our soul, in the core of who we are. And this presence is spiritual. It's not physical, but it is every bit, if not more, real than the things we can see and feel and touch. That's a hard lesson to learn. And as a parent, I found it challenging to explain to my kids as they continue to grow and mature in their faith. And they say, well, what does it mean that Jesus is with me? I mean, I know you're with me, Dad, because you're right here. How can Jesus be with me? And I remember having this conversation with Eli and saying, yeah, I know things that are physical, we can, we can touch them. They can prove themselves to us that they're here. But Jesus Spirit. His Spirit abides in us, and we have a soul. And, and that is the place in which we can say Jesus does abide in us. And even though we can't see it or touch it or feel it, it is the most real part of who you are. And for those of us who have had the privilege and the pleasure of following Jesus can point to our lives and know that there is proof, not physical, but proof in the way that we have lived our lives, at the times when we needed healing, when we needed peace, when we needed courage, and Jesus proved himself faithful and proved himself real and present. It is a difficult concept for us to understand, but it is one that we must uh, realize is being proven by the ascension. Jesus is physically absent, but spiritually present. And for us then, Still speaking in strong language, we must rely on the physically absent and spiritually present Jesus. And how do we do this in our life? Well, we recognize that Jesus is indeed seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, and therefore he makes it possible for us to approach God's throne and, and, and be able to have our voices heard in worship and in prayer. We are, we are not perfect people. We in of ourselves are, are not holy people. And God is holy and he is perfect. And there is this natural obstacle of sin in between us and God. That obstacle must be overcome. And the only way to overcome it is through Jesus. He is that mediator. He intercedes on our behalf. All of that to say he paves the way for us to approach God's throne. And so when we do gather together on Sunday morning and we have this opportunity to sing worship to God, we can be ushered into his presence because of the holiness of Jesus. And when we get on our knees at our greatest time of need and we pour out our hearts to God in prayer, we know that our voices are heard because of the interceding of the holy Jesus. Our, our worship should be revolutionized. Our prayer should be revolutionized all because Jesus was willing to ascend into heaven and be physically absent. And yet we also must rely on the spiritually present Jesus. Abiding in our hearts, he offers relationship so that we are never alone. He offers discernment 
so that we can figure out right from wrong and truth from falsehood. He gives us courage to live in the way that he's called us to live, even when it seems impossible. And he gives us hope that nothing can threaten or take away in the world around us, among many, many other things. So the truth for you today is that as Jesus has ascended and sent his spirit to abide in you, that you are not orphaned. You are not alone. And I remember back just to last weekend when we celebrated community and fellowship at church camp and how much I love and enjoy and appreciate having other like-minded believers with me. But even if all of that was taken away, I will never be alone. You are never alone. That is one of the promises of the ascended Jesus Christ. And as we continue to read the story after Jesus ascends into heaven, again, the disciples are gazing into that sky. They are staring and they are confused. And two angels come to then again explain the full meaning of what has just happened. I really love this story because there's really a a significant parallel between what happens here at the ascension and what happened earlier at the resurrection. So both times the disciples, the followers of Jesus were confused. And at both times there were two men in white robes who we now understand to be angels who came to explain the situation. After the resurrection, they asked a question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? At the ascension, they come and they appear and they ask a question. They say, why do you stand looking into heaven? At the resurrection, then they offer an answer to their own question. They say to the disciples, he is risen. And now here in verse 11, we read a further explanation. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same ways you saw him go into heaven. Jesus has left, but not for good. He is coming back. He will return. And how did he go? That's an important clue as to how we can understand his return. Well, for the ascension, we know that a cloud took him away. Now, this is more than just Jesus going up into the sky, and at some point he was above the clouds, and so the clouds hid him from sight. No, this is more than that. Uh, The the Greek really literally says that a, a cloud received Jesus. It received Christ. It took him, and it bore him up into heaven. The cloud was an active participant in how Jesus went to be seated by the, at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. Therefore, he will come back on a cloud. And that little detail matters a whole lot in terms of prophecy and of expectation. So when the angel says to the disciples that you saw him leave on a cloud, he will come back on a cloud, their minds, just like ours, were drawn back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 is an incredibly important prophecy, thousands of years before the time of Christ. And and Jesus had this penchant, he had this habit during his life and ministry to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And that always ties us back to Daniel. And now the angels come and they say his ascension also ties us back to Daniel. We know what to expect. And listen to the parallels that we have here in Daniel 7 with everything that we've read so far, picking up in verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And we can just put Philippians right next to it, that every 
knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is the victory that Jesus has won. This is our hope and expectation that there is a day coming and coming soon in which he will return and cement this victory and establish this eternal kingdom. If you can remember what we read in Acts, the, the, the disciples had a question of Jesus right before he ascended. They said, now Jesus, now that you've conquered death, now will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus doesn't say yes to that question. But the ascension and what draws us back to Daniel 7 shows that the plan was so much more. This is not just the kingdom of, of, of Israel. To him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages shall serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. The ascension takes the question of the disciples and says, you're still thinking too small. Jesus says, I am the son of man. I have won a victory. I have ascended into a heaven, and in the same way, I will return. And so at that moment, the disciples know that the promise is so much bigger. And for us, the question is much the same as the first followers of Jesus. Are you ready for Jesus to return, riding on the clouds of heaven? And really, there is only one proper response for us today. We must be prepared for the return of the King. And yes, Return of the King is a Tolkien reference because I'm a big nerd. But it's also a Tolkien reference because when we look at how he wrote Return of the King, we know that he was also thinking of the ascended Christ one day returning. And if you are ever willing to open up that book and you will enter into Tolkien's Middle Earth, you'll go to the nation of Gondor and you'll realize that the lineage of kings was broken. And they didn't have kings ruling the nation. They had stewards. And they would rule and they would reign, but they wouldn't do so as kings. They were only to take care of that nation until the true king would return. They were to live their lives in readiness for at any moment the return of the king. And we are called to live in the same manner. You may have heard it said, live each day like it's your last. And that would be a very worldly way of understanding the mortality that we all experience. But I think that sells our goal short. Instead, we should live each day as if Jesus is coming back at any moment. And this makes a huge difference in perspective. Then to eat, drink, and be merry becomes instead finding our true and complete fulfillment in Christ. Knowing that there is nothing in this world that will truly satisfy the hunger and thirst that we have outside of Jesus. Then instead of falling to this temptation of building our own kingdom, our priority will be taking as many people with us into this eternal kingdom of the Son of Man who will one day return on the clouds. And so that when he does return, there will be so many more people who lift their eyes up into heaven and celebrate that victory full of joy. And then when there are those times in which we are overwhelmed with the brokenness of this world, which, church, I have to admit, these last few years have been really easy to be overwhelmed with how imperfect our world is. Instead of that throwing us into fear or depression or anxiety, now it can give us this longing for Jesus to return and make it right. Because we still have famine and drought and flood and sickness and pestilence and war and murder and death. And it seems like more and more all the time. And I can't wait for this to be put to an end. Not that the world will end, but that the brokenness would end. That, that Christ could return and there would be a new heaven and a new earth 
And we haven't fixed any of our problems on our own. This world needs Jesus as much, if not more, now than ever before. And so we should not try to remove ourselves from the world or be dissatisfied with it. It should just create in us this deep longing for Christ to return. And it should create in us this deep motivation to share with others the hope and victory that's found in Him. We don't have to settle for cheering for sports teams. We don't have to settle for for living for fleshly desires that will one day fade away. We have a victory and a hope that are so much deeper. And so as we go from, from this chapel this morning, we are called into a deeper walk of life through the ascended Jesus. Because as the music team comes forward, we know for sure that Jesus has won. He has done what he has set out to do. And when you place your trust in him, you can celebrate the greatest victory. Not even a three-peat of Grey Cups will come close. Jesus is now both absent and present, and we need to rely on this tension because it allows us to freely come to God in worship and in prayer and have the abiding Spirit of Christ with us personally. We are never alone. We are never orphans. And yes, church, we leave in the, with this promise that Jesus is coming back to cement this victory forever. And so we need to learn to live awaiting the return of the King. And that is something I